moving, whether it's down the block to another city, another state, or even another country happens many, many thousands of times every year. Yet, it comes with mixed emotions. Most people I know, including myself, have different emotions about it. And an overwhelming majority will say that they're dreading it, whether it's preparing for it, going through it, holding their breath that everything gets there okay, and the transition is okay, and they adjust okay, and their families are okay, and it's the right decision. It's very unnerving, there's a lot of uncertainty and doubts along the way, in addition to just logistical challenges. So I thought it would be great to take a deeper dive into it. And I happened to have bumped into a former colleague of mine who just recently went through the process. Now he went to an extreme version because he moved to another country, but I think there's a lot to be taken from it. And also things that go beyond moving because moving is representative of a lot of things that we deal with in our life that we have to adjust to and we're unsure about and we have to make decisions and go for it. So I really believe that there's a lot of lessons that we can all take from it. And he was very candid and open about both the positive things and the challenges that he had to face along the way with his family. If you enjoy, please share, support us so we can get in front of more people. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to Mental Filter, where we get to speak with interesting people about interesting things all through the lens of mental health. And I'm excited to have a co-host today who is familiar to me. He's an old friend. He's an old colleague. And you heard in the intro about our topic of the day, which we'll do a deep dive in. But without any further ado, Shia, can you please introduce yourself to everybody listening? Hey, Shmuel. First of all, thank you for having me. I know we go back from the old Jewish board days when we were in a clinic with each other, and our friendship really began there. So uh, I value our friendship over the years and the camaraderie. So thank you for having me on. I'm Shia Sussman. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, a master's in educational leadership, and a KSAC certified alcohol substance and abuse counselor trainee. I primarily work with children as well as addictions, trauma, and abuse. Those, I say, would, would be the areas in the field that I work in. Currently, as we'll dive into things more, uh, I'm working on Zoom. Prior to that, mostly in person. But as you will hear, we moved to Israel with my family a little bit less than a year ago, around 11 months ago. That process is called Aliyah translated as ascending, moving to Israel. So I guess we'll jump into that as things unfold. 100%. And I too value our relationship and it's been many years in the making. I'm glad we're able to sit down. And for those who don't remember who I am, I, I failed to say this, I'm Shmuel. <laughs> you know, uh, by now, I hope people know who I am. I'm Shmuel Fischler. I own and direct CBT Baltimore, specialized practice a bit north of Baltimore, but it's not about me. So we're going to, together, we're going to, really dive into this experience. We're going to talk about you and your family's experience, which is a very, very common experience, happens uh, hundreds of thousands of times 
a year to people around the globe, but each one has its different flavor. And that is the whole process of the germination, I would say, of the idea of picking up and relocating and moving somewhere. And it could be under many, many different circumstances, some by choice, some less so. And the whole journey, and sometimes we don't talk about it. I mean, everyone knows, like, oh, moving is terrible. Moving is terrible. Moving is terrible. I wouldn't say it's terrible for everybody, but the process can be daunting. It can be overwhelming. And depending on the circumstances of moving, and there's moving you know, down the block, and there's moving halfway across the world like you did. And I think it's a valuable discussion to talk about how does that affect people, individuals, families, and we'll walk through that. So let's, I guess, let's start with first with you, and then we'll broaden it. Like, when was the first real seed planted that, you know, where you lived in New York, right? When was yeah. that first when was that first seed planted that oh you know what we're gonna we're gonna move halfway across the world? Yeah, I would say you have to be a little bit crazy to do that. But I also would like before we start the conversation, I would like to make a distinction. You know, people make immigration, like you're saying, hundreds of thousands, millions of people every year move around. And it's under different circumstances which people do so. I would say this, you know, what's going on in Ukraine now, what's goes on by the borders, you know, people are refugees and they're running for their lives to a better, safer place. And in my situation, and as it is in many, uh, this was not being chased anywhere. It's not a refugee. And I believe that type of immigration holds its own category. You know, I would put it in its own bracket. So uh, that being said. So let me just add to that and reinforce that 100 percent. We don't want to like minimize any of that. You know, we were talking before we started recording that there's a difference between running towards something and running away from something, which is what you're talking about. And unfortunately, some people are in situations, plenty of our family in past years has had to run away from terrible situations. So there's going away and there's going towards. Okay, so then now we can refocus on you now we can refocus uh so it really started i guess we'd back up when i first got married actually uh i guess it was 15 16 years ago already and we actually lived in israel it was just me and my wife our two older kids were born we have five kids we lived in israel for close to four years i would say and that was really the seed planting for us to really set up our lives then, you know, at that point, we had come for similar now, but spiritual ideological reasons to come and live in Israel, enjoy the land, the culture, the religious aspects and elements here. But it wasn't necessarily a we're going to be here long term type of thing. So it was there for a few years, we had moved back, we're back around 11 years, I would say, maybe a little bit longer. And during that time period, that was the germination of the idea of really moving our, relocating our family here now that our kids are older and we're in a different position in life than we were. During that time period, I would say, it was a constant conversation. It means this was, and this is true for any immigration that takes place, there's the, you know, pre-contemplation stage of it, you know, and... Often when people move countries, 
wherever they're relocating, it's a discussion that has been going ongoing for some period of time. So uh, this was a constant conversation that uh, not only me and my wife were having between each other, but me and my family at large, my kids, about moving to Israel. So that was really the the fact that we moved back, I would say, was the, was part of the culmination of the fact that we had been discussing this for many years. It wasn't for us, and again, every family story is different, but it wasn't for us just one day, random, uh, okay, we're out of here. <laughs> uh, it wasn't like that at all. It was actually coming from a much more discerning place. So this wasn't an impulse move? It was definitely not an impulse move. It was and, definitely not. You know, we're saying that like tongue in cheek, but you know, when people are younger or if let's say they don't have any children and it's like, oh yeah, sure. Cool. Let's, you know, be pretty cool to live in, you know, Singapore. Uh, so let's like hop up and move. And I don't know, can you speak, do you think it would have been any different if you didn't have a family? Well, I'll tell you, me by nature, I could be fairly impulsive. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm not naturally self-disciplined, you know, I could be erratic and not grounded by myself, you know, but so definitely would have been different had I not had a family, you know, but when there's certain cements, your life starts to cement, it becomes significantly harder to move. As someone told me, a friend of mine told me, he's like, inertia is one of the strongest forces in the world. An object at rest will stay at rest, you know, so you're settled practice going, financial situation, kids are part of the school, you're part of the community, you have your block, you have your neighbors, you have your family, you know, and you're picking up and now you're extricating yourself actually from your situation, something that I wouldn't have realized, I only realized this going through the process, is just how much intertwined me and my family were with the community, you know, just how entrenched we were with everything. And only once you start unraveling, you're unraveling your kids from their classes, from their schools, from the bus stop, from, uh, you know, we had a Seasons Express down, it's a local convenience store, you know, down the block. From that, from the familiarities, even from the people you don't like, you start untangling yourself, you start realizing like, wow, like, how does someone do this? And it's not something that I would have had an anticipated actually thinking about. You're like, okay, I'll go, it'll be hard, whatever, you know? But then when you start really unraveling yourself, you realize just how connected and ingrained, at least I could speak for me and my family, you know, how we were. That's a really great point. So, okay, there's a couple of really great things that you said that I want to try to highlight. And then together, I would love to be able to make a more broad application beyond the process of moving. So the most recent thing you just mentioned about being how entrenched and when we're, which speaks like when we're in something, we just don't realize how deep we are in something. So that can be in a community. And then you not only, you and your family not only moved, you know, neighborhoods or houses, you didn't just move cities, you know, you moved countries and and it's a completely different like there's culture on so many levels, whether it's how you go shopping, 
how you travel, how you communicate. Like there's so many. And, and then you realize once you're out of something, but I think for everybody listening, if you stop for a second, that applies to lots of things that we're entrenched in. And sometimes we don't think we can live without it, or it could be any different, or we don't acknowledge how, if you want to use the word dependent, we are on these things. So it could be the conveniences that I have at home or how much I utilize technology for better or for worse, or, you know, little things that we're, you know, really deep into, or even some things that are really positive. And, you know, growing up, my mother used to have on the refrigerator, she said, nobody notices what I do until I don't do it. (laughs) Right. Which I think, I think, which now many later, I can appreciate it so much more being on the other end of things. But even the wonderful things that we have, and then once we're out of it, I'm like, oh, you know what? That was really cool. That was really great. That was really wonderful. And sometimes we don't appreciate it. That's just one thing that I wanted to highlight. I don't know if you want to add anything to that before I go into the next thing that you mentioned. I mean, some of the conveniences, some of the things that you're used to, like small things, like things you take for granted, like grocery shopping. Grocery shopping here is very different than it is you know back in new york you know can you, back explain, in the can you explain one or two ways that it's that is different okay so it's i would say it's one of the harder parts of living here in israel of acculturating here is and adjusting is you know in new york it's kind of like there's endless amounts of cucumbers peppers milk chicken prepared food and it's a one-stop shop. You go to ShopRite, you go to Publix in Florida, you go to where we were in the Five Towns, Gourmet Glot, and, you know, everything's ready to go, endless amounts. It's, you know, supermarket is a modern-day miracle. It's a modern-day wonder. And here, you know, I remember it was right before one of the holidays, and uh, there was out of milk. They were out of milk, you know, no more milk. Everyone just, that's it no more milk, you know, or they were out of chickens or the, so you have to go to multiple stores for things. It's like that. So it's not like, you know, small communities don't bag your groceries here. It's like how I would pay extra to bag my groceries and put the dairy with the dairy and the meat with the meat and the perishables with the perishables, you know? So that's like significantly harder, that type of little thing that you don't even realize that you're just waiting online and your groceries are being banned for you, you know? Now imagine you go through the shop and you let everything the guard, the red, the cashier swipes everything. And now you have to bag all your groceries and someone's waiting because they got their own thing, you know? So it's like those little micro adjustments or micro little bit of nervousness, apprehensive, not sure. How do I handle this situation that the person's waiting I got a whole thing of stuff I got a bag, you know, those types of things. Right. And each one on their own of these little adjustments might really be not a big deal at all. But when you add up this little adjustment and this little adjustment, this little inconvenience, and that's something, oh, that's unfamiliar, you know, it could take a toll. And then on the flip side, I imagine that you've adjusted. Yeah, I would say it's a process. I would (laughs) say that it's definitely a process. 
And I think that will go for many of the things that we touch on, that immigration is a process that starts way before you move, even. It starts with, you know, a sense of wanting to be someplace else. And there are various reasons for that. But it's a process. And many years ago, I used to work in a place called the Bukharian Teen Lounge. And that was for fresh immigrant Bukharians in Queens. It was a rec center for them. And uh, they were, you know, as they say, straight off the plane. And their parents were very, uh, you know, they were from that world. And they were growing up in Queens, in New York, inner city New York, you know. And one of the things that I had learned, which is true for my experience as well, is that immigration is a process that starts way before you actually move. There's a certain sense of not wanting to be where you are and wanting to be someplace else. So in many people's cases, when they're not refugees, you know, they're already thinking about it often for years prior to actually making the jump. Right. And you can be thinking about and thinking about until you're actually ready to do it. And you mentioned something earlier about, you know, when you have a family, then you tend to be more, you know, cemented and you have to think about them. And I would just add to that, that on the flip side, you know, for some people, I can imagine it's actually difficult to do that because when you have to think about, it's a whole nother topic, which hopefully I'm going to do in a different episode. You know, you lose a little bit of yourself when you have to think beyond yourself. <laughs> you know, like you said, naturally, you would maybe are more of a free spirit and you would, you know, be a nomad, I don't know, and backpack around the world. And hopefully you feel a little bit of responsibility when you have a family. But I can also acknowledge that perhaps could be hard to be cemented that, well, no, I can't just like pick up and just go somewhere, see what happens. And then if it doesn't work, just, you know, move on. That could be hard because, you know, if depending on how long someone's been living on their own and been completely independent, it's not so simple to just do that. Yeah, I mean, I would say, though, you know, like, it's a fairly natural feeling, at least, you know, you have a family, you don't want to throw everyone under the bus, you know, and I think it's a fairly natural parenting feeling to want what's good for your kids and to not, uh, we hope so, you know, we hope so, <laughs> we hope so, that's true, that's definitely true also. So can you add to what you were saying earlier? Because I think this is also something that's very applicable to all types of situation. You use the word pre-contemplation, which maybe you can yeah. explain to people exactly what that is. And the different stages, because, again, beyond moving, beyond immigration, how does change happen? Like you just said a, a second ago, you know, it starts well before the actual physical move. And there is this like progression. So can you speak a little bit about, first of all, what pre-contemplation is? for people who don't know, and then a little bit more of how it progressed from you from the pre-contemplation stage. And then again, everyone's journey is a little bit different, but how did it like sort of progress till it became more of a reality and then it's actually happening? Sure. So I would say pre-contemplation is like thinking about thinking, you know, like you're thinking about moving, but you're far from that. You know, you're kind of maybe imagining it in your mind, you know, what would it be like to move my family there? Oh, you know, I'd really like to move to Israel one day. You know, uh, yeah, but I'm not actually going to do it, right? It just might be a dream, something that kind of comes and goes that you might play with like silly putty a little bit in the back of your mind. And, 
you're thinking about thinking about going, right? You're not actually preparing. You're not actually making plans. You're not actually calling anyone. You're not actually calling movers. That's already in going, you know, but you're not actually doing anything about it. You're not acting on it in any real way, but you kind of, you're thinking about thinking about going. Like, I wonder what it would be. You know, when you move into the more other stages, it's like, you're actually, you know, okay, I'm really serious about this. Let me call people, see what it would be like, how I should go. And that's already moving into contemplation, preparing, and actually going. But it starts, you know, like you were saying, the seeds for this was planted years ago. And I think for anyone who moves, you know, we were talking about a little bit beforehand, running towards versus running away, you know. And I could say, like, in my story, on one hand, I think there's a certain sense of dissatisfaction of where you currently are. I know people don't like to hear that so much. You know, people often want to say like, oh, you don't want to run away from anything, you know, but I wouldn't call it running away. I would still call it running towards because you're running towards something that I'd say in my case, moving to Israel was something that you deeply wanted. So when you feel that you can't be, at least for me, when I felt that you can't be provided with certain things where you currently are in life. So it's like a certain sense of wanting more. And the flip side of that is a certain sense of dissatisfaction starts to kind of creep in there, you know? So on one hand, I don't, again, I don't like the term running away. I don't, nothing was bad in my life whatsoever uh, at all, you know, had a great community, great support, great family, great practice. Everything was great. But I think it starts with a certain sense of wanting more, having your needs not met. And then from that feeling, a, a certain sense of dissatisfaction of like, I don't want to be here, you know, or maybe if I was someplace else, I could have my needs met more. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And I, I can imagine that sometimes it's as crazy as it sounds. It could almost be easier when things are worse. Yeah. My situation is, you know, I work with people all the time that, you know, if it's not so bad, then not necessarily really, really motivated to do something about it. And sometimes when it's like really clear cut, okay, this is terrible. I need to do something different. Sometimes that makes the change a little bit more obvious. And okay, I'm in when things are like, like you said, things are good. Things aren't bad. So on one hand, it's a blessing that you have something that you're passionate about and you love and you're going towards something that you're striving for something that you want more. On the other hand, you know, sometimes when things are good, it's easy to be complacent. Yeah, I mean, I definitely hear what you're saying. I think which makes, I don't want to say my story a little bit unique in that sense, but for so many people, like you're saying in the work that we do, you know, person hits rock bottom, you got no other choice, you got to go to rehab, you know, or a person's life is really in crisis and falling apart. There are certain changes that are really evident, you know, there's certain changes that are really evident. And in my case, you know, we've been called crazy. <laughs> we've been called unstable. We've been given many well wishes. I mean, that is a euphemism in our process of going, you know, because how many people are like, your family's doing well, you're doing well, everyone's doing well, why exactly are you going? Which is a good question. It's not a bad question. You know, it's a very good question. But yet at the same time, there is still that desire 
to live your dreams out. Yeah, I once heard a very interesting thing from the interview I listened to with Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, you know, and he said something at it. It's like one of these, like, uh, you know, it was like a YouTube short or something like that, you know, like a reel, you know, but it made an impact on me. It's funny, like, how much do people change from these things? Probably not much, but for, yeah, I, it was, I don't know, it just, it struck me. He's, someone asked him, how did he start Amazon? Like, what do you think? So he's like, I asked myself, like, uh, by the end of my life, if I don't live out my dreams, like, what are the risks and what are the rewards of me not actually living out my dreams, you know? So he's like, I realized, like, if I don't try to do my dreams and I get older and it's the end of my life, I'm going to feel that sense of I didn't do what I really wanted in life. So I figured I could go for it and I might fail, you know? In his position, he was saying that he could always go back to his old job or whatever it is, you know? But uh, I could say that was definitely a part of it, of wanting to do what you want to do. Someone told me a long, long time ago, and it sort of stuck with me, is, is that, said Shmuel, one of the worst feelings that you can have is the feeling of regret, which is what you're talking about. And I, years ago, I used to, I had a part-time job. I did some pastoral care in a nursing home, and I got to work with the older generation. I don't know if you remember that. And I had the privilege, really, of, you know, getting to speak with people who are on the last, in the last chapter of their life. And yeah, I can attest to that. Like having regrets, oh, I should have, you know, pursued this or I should have repaired this relationship. And not to say that I have pursued all of my, you know, dreams. There's still plenty that. Um, well, you got this. I want to encourage you <laughs> in front of your audience. Anybody, anybody your dreams. Anybody who knows me personally is, is that I have this like ongoing running list of like random ideas that some are slightly practical. Most are <laughs> not, but I have pursued some of them. Listen, I just, you know this, I saw you. I just took right. out on a limb and took an opportunity. I traveled for two weeks. I was in Israel for this, one of the largest international sports competitions as a mental health specialist. And that's something that was just like, Okay, this is an opportunity. Like, I have to take this opportunity. You know, is I it? Just, I want to. I, I want to tell your audience. By the way, I met Shmuel there at this international games, and he had all the swag. It was amazing. He had this white USA hat and the shirt, and it was just the perfect moment, guys. Yeah. Right, just sharing it. It was. It was fantastic, and I have like no regrets. And I was really, actually, really debating about it, like internally, and talking with my family and talking with people. Like, listen, at the end of the day, is this like, is it really because it was, you know, time and money, and like, is it going to be worth it? And someone who I consult with said, like, Shmuel, like, this was like months before. He's like, when fast forward a couple months, when this is happening, are you going to be like sitting around and wondering, like? man, I wonder what it'd been like to go. I wish I would have just gone for it and, and went. And I was like, absolutely. That's what I would be like. So he's like, then you got to go. But I don't think he was advocating for me to be Mr. Impulsive and, and just like, you know, <laughs> you know, pursue every whim. But yeah, I think there's truth to what you're saying that, you know, if you go through life and there's so many things that, you know, I wish I would have pursued that. So to wrap up the previous conversation we were having, the pre-contemplation and the contemplation that you have, 
What are your observations on those stages for the people you work with? And do you, do you have like a better appreciation for those stages of change? How would you compare and contrast yeah. those stages with the people you work with now that you've yeah. really gone, gone through all these stages of change yourself with your family? Yeah. I mean, there's so much to talk about how much this has impacted my work, understanding, going through the stages of change in a major way. And really, I would say, and maybe the conversation will shift gears now, one of the number one things that this has shifted my attention to in the people that I work with is really a sense of loss, really a deep sense of loss. I remember you could I have a YouTube channel if anyone wants to see it, Shy Assessment Counseling. You could see blogs of moving to Israel and I was able to film about a year and a half process of it. Still putting them out one by one. Hit that subscribe, push that like button. <laughs> uh, but it's really put me in touch with that. You know, when you're moving and again, and you're unraveling, there's a deep sense of loss, a real heavy sense of loss of leaving everything you know, leaving what you're used to. And again, I'm on the other side of this now. I'm here now, right? So I see a lot of it was unfounded fears, a lot of worry, and there's what to talk about. And I'm just talking about prior to going, you know, there's really a deep sense of loss of leaving your family, my parents, my siblings, all of them who I'm very close with, my in-laws, my wife's side of the family, which is my family also, you know, so there's a very profound sense of loss that sets in. We had a lift come pack up our house. Explain uh, to everybody what a lift is. A lift is a container that your whole entire house could go on. It goes on a ship and it gets shipped across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> and that's how they import, export goods of any sort. So a lot of times when you're moving internationally, depending on how much stuff you have, People will get a lift in order to move their beds, their books, their couches, their furniture, their, their stuff. You know, we have a lot of stuff. <laughs> I recently listened to a client of mine sent me a George Carlin skit about stuff, why people have a lot of stuff. It was, it was very funny. And, uh, we have houses to keep our stuff. Yeah. <laughs> very interesting. So that's what a container ship of a lift is. And, you know, the movers come and they pack up your stuff and they put it on a, a container, a lift, and your entire house is on your lawn in boxes. It's like, oh, it's so overwhelming emotionally, Shmuel. It's like fighting back tears and saying goodbye to your friends, saying goodbye to your family, you know, and other people's reactions, you know, other people, it brings up a lot of stuff and a lot of other people. We'll come back to that point. I'm glad you mentioned other people's reactions. I want you to continue talking about like the sense of loss and the loss of community, of friends, of family. And even as you're moving stuff, you probably have to downsize some of the stuff and get rid of the stuff. And you have to decide what you're taking, what you're not taking. Yeah. And then I'm so glad you brought up the people's reactions because people react differently and some people, not intentional in a malicious way, can try to be almost go on the aggressive side or the pouring on the guilt side 
you know, in a maybe in a passive aggressive way. Well, you know, really, how could you, you know, do you really care about us? And so what I'm trying to say is, is that while simultaneously, while there's loss for you and your family and you're leaving, there's also loss for them. And yeah. people react differently when they're faced with the loss. And it's a mixed feelings. And, and you're allowed to have mixed feelings. On one hand, I'm happy for you. On the other hand, how do I deal with this loss? And sometimes people turn that into something negative. But I know that I interrupted you because you were talking about the deep okay, yeah. loss. But once you mentioned other people's reactions, I just had to jump in there. For sure. So I would like to also talk about, we'll come back to this, but really talking about other people's reactions also, because when you move, it brings up a lot of feelings in other people. And talking about a feeling of loss is like a very, very profound sense. And even now that I'm here, I find it creeping in at times. Uh, not as much as it was initially, for sure. My wife as well. And kind of the way me and my wife had termed it with each other. And I think this is where my you know, emotional finesse comes in. You know, my knowledge as a therapist is really helpful here. Really just to honor those feelings. Really just when you find yourself, you know, we threw a goodbye party for our kids, you know, and saying bye to their friends and they're young. I mean, you know, we'll go through their ages. We'll come back around to talk about them also, but there's a sense of loss. There's a sense of sadness, you know, packing, selling, we sold our house, you know, it's your house, you know, someone else is coming into the house, you know, there's a sense of loss. Like who knows what colors they're going to paint our bedroom, you know? <laughs> yeah. So there's definitely, there's definitely a profound sense of loss and, you know, we just kind of honor those feelings as they arise within us, just to acknowledge like, yeah, of course, there's a sense of loss. Of course, you feel that way. It's natural and healthy and normal. So we really, me and my wife, we gave a lot of respect to those feelings that we had. And we actually spoke about it with our kids also, like acknowledging for them that things are hard. They're leaving their school. They were in their schools their whole lives. They were in their classes their whole lives, you know, so really being very open about this piece of the puzzle with our kids. In terms of other people's reactions, now, you know, when you get a haircut, people have a lot to say. For <laughs> sure, for sure, when you move to another neighborhood, people have what to say. You move to another state, you move to another country, right? It brings up a lot of feelings in other people, and there was definitely a mixed reaction from people. Some people were very supportive, saying we're so happy for you, we're so proud of you, you're going to love it there, it's going to be great there. But we definitely had our fair share of naysayers that it brought up, I believe, loss in them as well, and a sense of grief in them as well, watching us go, maybe a sense of guilt, you know, uh, feeling we could have done more to reach out, or we could have connected more. Someone told us they're not going to speak to us ever again. We've had several people tell us that. Or I remember we got together with a certain certain people and they were very much like, you're leaving us, you're abandoning us, why are you abandoning us? And uh, these are not the same people. These are all different people. Meaning to say is definitely real. And, you know, I think this is where the human element of being a therapist comes into play, you know, of just really not taking it personally and trying to respect other people's feelings as well uh, between me and my wife on this, just understanding that they're going through a grief and they're feeling a loss and maybe they're feeling abandoned, let down. Uh, and, you know, there's validity 
their side of the story as well, you know, and trying to respect their process the best we could. I think it's really profound what you're saying, because it's very easy for us. I'm much, much better off the fact that I'm in this profession and it's, you know, forced me to grow and to learn and to grow and to learn and which I'm very grateful for, but that doesn't make me you know, impervious to any of these things. I think it's very profound what you're saying. It's so easy to look at the surface of how people are reacting and how people are behaving without taking a minute to appreciate, you know, the context. So again, you have a dual process going on here. You have the experience that you and your family are going through, and then you have the process of what they're going through, right? And every single person that you've been involved with has their own history, you know, whether it's abandonment or guilt or regret. And then now they're faced with someone who obviously they care about is now is not going to be there anymore. And then, like you said, some people felt that they were abandoned and some people were happy for you. And then some people maybe feel it highlighted the guilt. Oh, now, you know, I didn't take the time enough time with you. And sometimes people turn that into laying guilt on you or trying to make you feel that. But there is context to when people react they're not reacting in a vacuum. They're reacting, you know, for a reason. And I react to a sense of loss different than the next person reacts to the sense of loss. So some people, when they have a loss, they might get angry and irritable and aggressive and go on the attack. And other people might withdraw and they might not talk to you because they can't handle talking to someone that they're going to miss so much. Some people might lay on the guilt. And it's so ironic, by the way, the timing here is like, I literally, I'm in the middle of a book that I really, really, really like. One of the many that are on my shelf that I have to slowly work through. It's called Permission to Feel. I think it should be required reading, honestly, because it talks about observing and recognizing and navigating emotions. And a lot of us don't necessarily do that. It's written by someone from Yale, the Center for Emotional Intelligence, I think, something like that. And I literally was just reading the other day, a difference between jealousy and envy. Mm. And one of the things that you described, I think falls under jealousy, is that jealousy is more along the lines of that I'm going to miss out on something. It's almost like a loss. I'm afraid that I'm going to miss something as opposed to envy is like, okay, I really want that. And I don't have that. So I'm envious that I don't have that. This might fall under the jealousies that, oh, you know what, maybe I'm missing out. Maybe I should have, I'm jealous of the fact that you had the kahunas to go ahead and go for it. And maybe I feel like I should have been able to do that and I'm not brave enough to do that. So now I'm jealous that I'm missing out on an opportunity of a lifetime. So it's just like ironic that, you know, I just literally just read that the other day. I mean, yeah, I mean, something you know very well. We don't all respond the same to the same stimulus, right? (laughs) So everyone has their world of thoughts, beliefs, emotional, you know, emotional stuff. So that definitely gets brought up for people, you know, across the board. It's so interesting to see, by the way. I mean, it's really, really interesting to see how different people react, you know, we were the brunt of it sometimes, you know, it was, it was pointed towards us. But, you know, it's, it's again, it's not 
personal, you know, everyone has their own baggage, their own stuff, their own strong points, their own low points. Everyone's human, you know, and I deeply respect their world, you know, and, but uh, it's, it's quite interesting actually to see what it brought out in different people from lay leaders to leaders, to family, to friends, like really across the spectrum people, there was an array of reactions from people, you know, and I think Here's where we're talking about the different stages of going. Like for us, you know, again, there's the, we've been talking very much so about the emotional component, but there's also the logistical component of going. And you combine the two and it's a lot. And when you feel discouraged, there's definitely points where you're like, why are we going through all this? You know, it's very difficult. There's a sense of loss, sense of grief. People are having different reactions. You have your own fears. You have your own anxieties about yourself, your family, your kids. So really, this goes back to unwinding yourself and unenmeshing yourself from where you are. So for us, you know, we had to have a very strong conviction that this is what we want to be doing with ourselves. Not even to fool ourselves. It's just, you know, there are people, let's say, who start to, let's say, with moving to Israel. I'm sure this is true in any place that they're going people start the process and they stop why because it's hard it's hard emotionally it's hard logistically you know so you really you know talk about the stages of change you know like you really have to be certain or convinced or believe or have conviction that you're behind what you're doing because it's quite the ordeal well again we have a parallel between your experience and everyone's life experience and going through stages of change is well you answered one of my questions of like well what are some of the obstacles of moving from one stage to another stage is that you know that it's really hard and you have to have this conviction that this is what you want to do change is hard like Change doesn't happen in a half hour episode of TV. It doesn't happen like that. You know, just because you have some narration and music in the background, like it doesn't happen like that. It takes an amount of persistence and you're right. And that's the parallel to the work that you and I do is that it's not so simple. And that's why people stop. And that's why then go back to the drawing board. And to add to that, you can do all the logistical planning and all the emotional work. But at the end of the day, it's a risk. Yes. And you have to accept that risk. We didn't even touch on like the 30 other things that happen when you move even to another state, let alone another country. There's a language barrier. There's even a culinary adjustment, the types of food that you eat. Forget about the shopping, but just like the water, <laughs> the water, the you, water. Know, I know, you know, different countries, the water I know you can't see it, but Shai is holding up a bottle of water from there. You know, it could affect the GI system. It could take a major adjustment or the water in the shower, hard water, soft water. How do you heat up the water? You know, in, in different countries, you have to like plan your showers. My point the weather. Is, the weather. My point is, is that like, you know, we try to like be in control of things and you can have all the logistics. So many things can happen that you know, even if you're the most type A planned, organized person, you know, your lift could get delayed. 
maybe you could speak a little bit about the process of when you're moving to another country, what you have to do. Like, that was going to be one of my questions. Like, what are some things that people don't realize the processes you have to go through when you're moving and moving to another country, whether it's your passports or your travel papers or your lift visas, visas, like, so I want you to speak to that. Just to wrap up that point is that like, even if you're all planned, you have to be able to accept that. I don't know. still don't know how it's going to go. We turned it, when I say we, it's me and my wife, we were partners in this. And that that's to, to another point, like, you know, including the family, having good marital harmony, <laughs> you know, having a strong team mentality between you and your wife. There's so many moving parts to this, you know. So when I say we, I'm including my wife in this because honestly, she was doing most of the paperwork, most of the planning. I was more on top, managerial. Yes, no, yes, no. Quality <laughs> no, control. Quality control. You said you weren't involved. I said, what do you mean? I told you to do this. I told you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I get a good eye roll. You know, but the teamwork, the team mentality needs to be so strong. It needs to be really, really strong because there are so many, the stakes are high. You know, there are so many nerves flying in all different directions. There's so much logistically, there's so much emotionally. And all that said, to bring it back to what you were saying, it could go wrong. You still don't know. So like we had termed it both to ourselves and our family, expect everything to go wrong. Expect that the first year we were here, and again, we're here 11 months, where expect everything to go wrong. Like just expect, expect the worst, you know, expect for it to be an epic fail, you know? And we really went in with the idea of everything's gonna go wrong, <laughs> you know? Everything's gonna go wrong. And thank God we were pleasantly surprised, you know? There was more that went right than actually went wrong. We were pleasantly surprised with, you know, so many things, the adjustments, the support, the schooling, the accommodations, of being here. For example, one of the big fears is schooling, especially in Israel. There's, and I'm sure this is true for any country, any place that a person moves to, there's a strong culture and different groups within a culture and subgroups. And where do you want to place yourself? I would share this very openly with your audience. One practical piece of advice that I received from a rabbi of mine, his name is Rabbi Gerzi, he gave me such great advice. And often the most best advice, Shmuel, is the simplest. It's the one that's the most common sense. It's the one that's right under your nose. And when you hear it, you're like, oh, duh. You know, he, in terms of schooling, he told us streamline it, send to the schools and place yourself in the most similar environment within Israel to where you are now. Don't mix anything up radically. Don't move to a crazy different type of neighborhood has a different cultural and religious feel to it. Keep everything exactly the same as much as you possibly could to streamline it. And that simple piece of advice was really a guiding light for us uh, because we were ready to reinvent the wheel. We were like doing everything wrong. <laughs> uh, so, okay, this is going to sound like off the wall here, but what you made me think of, first of all, that is great advice and really, really not to compare at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to out myself here a little bit. 
is is that when I was a teenager, I don't know if my kids would have enough patience to listen to an entire podcast episode of mine, so hopefully they won't get to this point in the episode, is that when I was a teenager and working on getting a fake ID, the advice that I got, this is true for any lying, and I'm not saying this professionally, this is off the record, is that try to keep your lies as close to the truth as possible. So making a fake ID, I was told, like, don't try to make up like Joe McPherson, you know, or whatever. Like Timothy try, McVeigh. Try to make it as close okay. to the real data as possible. So when you're trying to use your ID somewhere, you're not like fumbling over. Now, I know that's a silly comparison, but. I completely agree. And like, that's fantastic advice. And it's true, like you said, it's true if you move from city to city and state to state, because, you know, there's school districts and you do all this research and we want the best for our kids. So which is the best district to be in? So if we move here, then we'll fall under this district in this public school. Or if here, is it worth it to spend this money and go to this private school? And it's like all these like, oh my gosh, and how do I know if it's the right choice? And we don't. Yeah. Ultimately, again, ultimately you don't. And there was so much consideration went into where we're going to live. But even more than that, that we were able to kind of settle the score uh, through just a process of narrowing it down, making calls, trying to do research, reflecting upon where is it that would be the best for us. But the most amount of consideration really went into school. And we have five kids. My oldest was going into eighth grade. Next one going into seventh grade. I mean, they had all just graduated. So it's like 14, 12, 10. I think I skipped one. 27. How much much consideration did you and your wife have regarding like the ages of your kids when you were moving? Like, is there... You think there's a more so, optimal sort of, not natural, but like timing to move to a new place? So my realizations, there's a before the move and there's after the move. Being here, I have a different conceptualization of it as opposed to prior to being here. I understand it differently. And one of the impetuses is for us to move. And I'll just share this. I think it's part of our story. You know, right when COVID hit, right in the beginning of lockdowns, Everything was reduced to nothing. <laughs> Again, I fell apart during COVID, like many. I'm not ashamed to admit that, you know, but at the same time, it was for a little bit of time, it was a quiet pause. And that pause, that break, that just everything stopped, was really a pause of quietness for my wife and I to really look at each other and say, our kids are getting older. If we really want to be in Israel, if that's, we really want to move countries, we, we, we want to change directions or maybe continue in the same path, but in another place, now's the time. And that really paused and gave us the inner fortitude and the quiet mindedness in order to make that decision. Now, one of that things that definitely went into there, coming here, my daughter was going into eighth grade. She's going into ninth grade this year. We had felt that like, She'll be 15 then. We're going to move when she's 15. Like my son will have been a bar mitzvah that turned 13 at that age. And where everyone, you know, another year, you know, the four-year-old's five and this one's that. And, you know, we felt that it would make it significantly harder. And this definitely went into 
of the decision-making process the kids age we're going to move when they're 17 like that didn't make sense you know so the schooling and the age really was definitely a big motivator especially for the younger kids that we have to get them in if we want to do it we felt a certain sense like now's the time to do it you know because everyone's just going to get older now being on the other side of things here though i will say that i see it differently i see that you can really bring your kids here at any age there's a tremendous amount of support here and maybe this is unique to israel in itself i don't know but there is a lot of support here there is a lot of blended schools where they speak english and hebrew blended culturally as well you know wearing nike airs following sports things that just feel regular not so drastic again there are things that feel drastic too but being on the other side of the process i see that there is a lot more wiggle room than i had anticipated okay thank you that's helpful so two additional questions on that then so first of all you mentioned way in the beginning that you had a conversation with your whole family so yeah. how if you're comfortable answering this okay let's say some of them said no i'm not going you know, how much stock, and this is, you know, each family's individuals, like when you have a conversation with your family, you know, yeah. how, how much is it a democracy, complete democracy? We put our votes in and, you know, like, like that, is it? it oh, okay, okay. And then the second question, sort of related yeah. question was, because you mentioned like, you know, there's a lot of calculations, there's logistics, there's emotion, there's doubts, there's, honestly speaking, was there ever a point along the way where you just say, that's it? It was a nice thought. I'm done not happening. We definitely had those moments. I'll answer the second question first, because that's easier. We definitely had those moments of, we're not doing this. We definitely had those moments. And they were moments, for sure we had them. Breaking down, crying, calling the government agencies, we need this visa, we need that paper. For example, okay, my birth certificate said, my legal name on my birth certificate said, no name given Sussman. Okay. That's an awesome now, name. It happens to be. No name given Sussman, right? It says, my passport says my name. My driver's license says my name. My social security card says my name. All my degrees say my name, right? My licenses say my name. My name is everywhere except on my birth certificate, a vital document. Now, we got led down months and months. And keep in mind, this was during COVID. So everything took, something that takes long, took triple as long, <laughs> right? you know, how to get your name changed. It took over a year to figure out to get the right documents. In the end, I had to go through a legal name change. You know, do you know what that process was like? Oh, so you could have, one second, hold up. So you could have picked anything at that point. Once you're going through the the name change, you could have been like, were you tempted? Be honest. I was, I was going to go for Cheyenne. Got it. I was thinking about going for Cheyenne. I don't don't know what I would go for. That's, wow. But you see, it's such a, you know, so there are definitely, you know, my wife called the city councilwoman every day, you know, for we need this, we need that, when we do this, are you going to hear back from that? You know, this is true for, I think, for all immigration processes, you have to get something called an apostille. An apostille is an international certified document, which is the highest level of notary possible. It happens to be my brother runs one of the largest apostille companies in the East Coast, Apostille Co., Look it up. All right. Look, hey, him uh, up. look him up if anybody needs him. 
you could delete that one if you want. But a uh, so that was helpful. But so there's definitely times. Back to the democratic process. Would I have if one of my kids were like, "I'm not going." What would we have done? How many eggs did we have in this basket? So let me start off by saying it would have been really challenging had one of my kids been like that. But because you know we're a pretty open family and we try to support each other and we're very not top down, we're much more alongside buddy buddy. You know we try not to use executive authority all the time. Sometimes you have to, but it's not our go-to move. And because of that, moving to Israel was always part of the conversation. So my kids were really on board even before we had decided, made the final decision, which in my case made things really much, much more easier. Had they been fighting us the entire way, I think our first move would have been to try to finesse it, to try to take that kid, finesse it, try to bring them on board. And if they still if we couldn't have been convincing enough, then yeah, some serious consideration would have gone into maybe not going. So I don't know what would have played out, but I think that would be true with many areas in life with my children, meaning to say, if they were adamantly against something, you know, we're not into forcing or my way or the highway type of thing. So we would try to talk it out with them and tried to come to some level of understanding, some level of mutual agreement, you know, and that's really just how we go about things in general, you know, so I don't see why this would have been any different. And again, if they still would have been no, so then there's something to talk about, but again, right. that didn't happen. Right. Okay. That's a good perspective. Now, we certainly don't have time to go through all the minutiae of all the steps someone needs to take. You touched on some of them just now of what documents and the processes. And then once you get there and how do you adjust and there's the logistical adjustment, there's a social adjustment. You're like, you know, the new kid on the block. And if you could highlight maybe just a couple, what were some of the things along the process that surprised you as far as like what was required, like logistically, like you mentioned about, okay, let's see, you mentioned the birth certificate. What were some of the things that that person might not really think about along the logistical process of moving somewhere it could be international but it, it could be you know national too that maybe yeah. surprise you and then part b is in the acculturation process or the adjustment process what maybe surprised you as far as something you have to adjust to earlier you mentioned some of the smaller things like you know not bagging at the grocery store and what were some of the things on that end that maybe surprised you and what helped you adjust to that? So surprise along the process and then the adjustment. Surprise along the process. I don't know. It's a good question, Shmuel. So I'm just taking a moment to reflect upon it. Oh, you're just saying that you anticipated everything. So there were no surprises along the no, way. No, no. The, <laughs> there's like an ongoing surprise, you know. And it's very particular about moving to Israel. What status do you have? Do you have the status of, I'll tell you this, I, I guess this would be, I mean, do you want a very detailed answer or a very broad stroke answer? Whatever, whatever works. Okay. Well, I'll start with a detailed answer. Like my wife's father is actually Israeli. However, she's not. She was born 
in the States. She never had an Israeli passport. She never had Israeli citizenship, et cetera, et cetera. So she was never registered at Israeli, however that works, okay? Being that we had lived in Israel for three years when we were first married, the uh, Israeli government wanted to consider her something called a returning resident as opposed to a new resident. That was a big deal because there are different benefits that you get. There are different benefits that your status as a returning resident or a new mm-hmm. resident, an ole chadash is the Hebrew word, right, is different, right? So these things make a difference in terms of government gives you subsidies, your kids get certain benefits in terms of ulpan, which is classes to learn Hebrew. A thing that I was really surprised about and I also want to spend time focusing on some of the good surprises also. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of mental health conversations turn into focusing on negatives, but there were so many good things that happened also. You know, I mean, one thing that was really challenging that I could say was navigating the document process between the governmental agencies and what we we're going to call the powers that be that help people go from the diaspora, from foreign soil to move to Israel Navigating those agencies uh, at times was fairly challenging. Not impossible. You get it done. Not impossible. Are you saying, but, are you uh, saying like organizationally they were like disorganized? They were a nightmare. They were dysfunctional. Like what? What was? Uh, we received a lot of wrong information, a lot of misinformation, and you know when you're looking towards an agency, and I believe this is probably true with anyone who is an immigrant to any country, you know. Government organizations in general don't really run the smoothest. (laughs) You go to the DMV, you're there for a very long time, right? So receiving misinformation is often worse than receiving no information because you're receiving information that's inaccurate. So you think you're doing the right thing and you're kind of going down, but really you're going down a rabbit hole. So, you know, I think that could be said very broadly across government agencies in general, and certainly it could be said uh, within the process of moving to Israel. So that was an obstacle that you didn't anticipate as far as, besides for all the things that were required, but getting past misinformation, which then sets you back because you're going down one path, which you shouldn't be going down and you lose time by going down that path. That was one obstacle that maybe people don't really anticipate. Oh, I'm going to have to deal with misinformation. Yeah. Navigating the process of it is not so simple. It's not so simple. Again, I want to preface this with some remarks over here. I think it's important to say this. Being on the other side of the ocean, you know, being on the other side here, uh, it's wonderful. It's significantly better than I had imagined it to be. It's the culture. Again, the language, it's a challenge. You got to learn the language. Our kids get private tutoring for the language. They also get it in school. Their classes are in Hebrew, which is the language spoken here. Many of their classes are also blended. So like their teachers made Aliyah move to Israel when they were their age also. So, and come from American families or Anglo families, I would say South Africa, London, Manchester. So they really understand what the kids are going through and have the ability to speak English also. So while the classes are conducted in Hebrew, that is the language, that is the language of education, that is the spoken language you know, if the teacher needed to, you know, take them aside and explain a little bit in English, you know, so, and as well as what type of school attracts immigrants. Like I grew up in a neighborhood in Staten Island called Fort Richmond. Everyone spoke Spanish. 
in the public school, everyone spoke Spanish, right? So it's the same here. Like you gravitate, you're going to put your kids in the environment where there are other Anglos like you and the school now caters to that thing. So like the parent body is blended, you know, many Anglos, many Israelis, you know, the teachers, they're blended, you know, some don't know any English and some are American for all intents and purposes, you know? So that type of blend, that type of hybrid was a pleasant surprise. My kids integrated significantly faster than we thought they would. It's a huge blessing. It <laughs> no is a huge blessing. If your kids don't adjust socially, that could affect everything. The life here is slower. It's less busy. Frankly, in my opinion, it's much more spiritual. My daughter was actually sent her back to the States for camp for a month to give her some of what she's used to, you know, and see her old friends and stuff. And what she says, she says in a restaurant and there's great service. She was at some restaurant and she was like, uh, I'm like, how was the service? Did you like? She's like, yeah, you know, they help you, but they don't really want to be helping you. They're just doing it because like they have to. Here in Israel, they say, we don't want to be helping you. <laughs> you know, there's a certain authenticity, you know, not passive aggressive. I, uh... Oh, yeah. The culture there is very, you, you see what you get, you get what you see, they, they speak your mind, and that's... Yeah, so everyone's very, everyone shows their cards up front. Uh, people are kind here. There's a very deep sense of brotherhood. I went on a hike with my family. We came up the wrong side of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. We thought we'd be coming up to my car after this five or six hour hike. And we came up on the wrong side. I ended up someplace and trying on my phone, figure out how far away from the car. It turns out we're a half hour drive. We took the black trail really in the wrong direction. We ended up on some Moshav, which is a small town, I guess. And uh, I'm like, hello, where are we? Where do we go? Some guy, his name is Ellie um, from Morocco. He himself was an immigrant. You know, Israel's a country of immigrants, which is really amazing. This guy, Ellie, who was in his late 70s, who came when he was 10 years old from Morocco, not only did he take us into his house and give us something to eat, he called his son, who took me on his RV off-roading a half-hour drive through the woods and brought me to my car and refused to take any money as a tip for it. Wow. A random stranger, I drove back, picked up my kids, and that's a unique experience. You know, that's a sense of brotherhood, a sense of culture. You know, and in Israel, it's a country of immigrants. The country's 70 years old. Really, the state of Israel is around 70 years old. And one here in the streets, there are many, many spoken languages, not just Hebrew. Uh, in Jerusalem, regularly, you hear French, you hear English, you hear Hebrew, you hear Arabic, you hear accents from London. Lovely, you know. South African accents, and really the whole country in a, is a melting pot in that sense that it's a country of immigrants. No one's been here too long, you know? Right. Uh, so it's really, really fascinating, and I think that leads to a certain sense of confidence. So I'll say words wrong in Hebrew, you know, I'll stutter over myself, I'll find myself without a lack of word, but knowing that they're only here 10 years also, they're only here 30 years you know, okay, 30 years longer than 10 years, you know, but it adds to a sense of, uh, of togetherness and brotherhood. That's amazing. That's amazing. We can go on and on. We're going to have to wrap up. 
I guess last question here before we wrap up is, you know, being on the other side now, gone through the process, certainly had its challenges. You, you your family obviously really had a goal and aspiration in mind that helped push through a lot of the challenges and and thankfully it's the process, but your family's adjusting and it's working out. Someone who's contemplating or someone who's pre-contemplating or someone who's in the action phase, like yeah. what's maybe one thing that you learned or one small piece of advice to provide to them? That's a really good question. My gut reaction is two things. One is you could do it. And the second thing, I would say is that being here is for me significantly easier than getting here. Getting here is hard. Being here is easier. (laughs) I don't want to paint it rosy. There are difficulties. We've definitely touched on a bunch of them, but it's so much more easier. It's worth it, you know? And I think people always conflate hard as bad. You know, and it's really important to make that distinction. Hard isn't bad. Hard is good, but it's hard, you know, and like it's very meaningful and rewarding for me. And I believe I could speak with my wife on this part, being able to move your family in a direction that is, again, for me, this is for me personally, you know, that's more meaningful, you know that you feel that you're moving your family in the right direction and seeing your kids speak Hebrew, adjusting, making friends. It's very rewarding. It's very, very meaningful. It's a very meaningful experience for sure. You know, that's a really beautiful thought. And when I hear that, I hear that. And I hope everyone listening hears something similar, that idea that, you know, getting there may be hard, but, being there is not as hard and anything that we're going through in life the getting there is is a lot harder than being there and once you're there usually you won't have the regret of all the hard things that you had to do to get there so that's what i take and i hope people take that the same way you know it's work it's hard like you said it's not bad and once you're there how worth it it was we have a saying in our house you know, I know you want to wind down, Shmuel, but we have a saying in our house. We say, one is, you know, I think it's very relevant to therapy, you know, about process. Things are a process, you know. The second thing is we always say, like, don't blame every problem on moving to Israel. Don't blame every problem on immigration. Like, you have social problems. Yeah. Like, back in the States, there were problems too, Right. Like, sometimes you're just bored. It's not Israel's fault that you're bored. You know, sometimes you're just going through a rough patch. You're doing bad in school. It's not Israel's fault that you're doing bad in school. Right? I think it's important to separate the things that are unique to the challenge and things that are regular life things that people struggle with on the daily. That's very, very true. And how people can take that. So this has been fantastic, Shia. Thank you so, so, so much. Now, if people want to find you, want to follow you, you said you have a YouTube channel, like tell them where they can find you. Okay, I have a YouTube channel where I have videos. I have an Instagram, Shia Sussman LCSW, where I write content, short form blogs and posts. I have a website, shiasussman.com, which will just forward you to the YouTube and Instagram. 
you could Google my name, all sorts of articles, videos, all different sorts of things. All right, fantastic. Thank you all for listening. I don't think I mentioned this earlier. I try to mention every time. If you enjoy this stuff, please share it. I only create these episodes because I think it's meaningful to people. There's really, there's no ulterior motive here. And I just would like to get it out to people if they can gain something from it. So share it, like it, subscribe, all that stuff, because that's what gets it to other people. And thank you for taking the time, Shaya. And thank you for taking the time. Thank to you, Shmula. There. Pleasure.